IEEE SA Voice shares insights and perspectives from the IEEE SA community, subject matter experts, and industry leaders that are working to raise the world's standards, drive market solutions, and much more, keeping you at the forefront of technological innovation for the benefit of humanity. Welcome to the IEEE Essays Rethink Health podcast series. I'm your host, Maria Palombini. I am Director, Healthcare and Life Sciences Global Practice here at the IEEE Standards Association. This podcast takes industry stakeholders, technologists, researchers, clinicians, regulators, and more from around the globe to task. How can we rethink the approach to healthcare with the responsible use of new technologies and applications that can afford more security, protection, and sustainable, equitable access to quality care for all individuals. You can check out our previous seasons on ieesa.io backslash health podcast. So as a result of the recent pandemic, the term telehealth has become a frequently used one, and it does not appear to be going away. The reality is the way we see telehealth today will look very different tomorrow. Telehealth is manifesting in many different forms. It's more than what we commonly see as the doctor-patient exchange on an audio-video platform. It is so much more than that and continues to evolve with innovations in RPM, remote patient monitoring. The telehealth experience has changed the patient's expectations on healthcare services. They're relating to it more of a concierge-level online retail experience, convenient, appropriate, and personalized. And then there's this growing RPM space. There's so many different forecasts when it comes to RPM, anywhere from 150 billion US dollars by 2028 to estimates of 40% of patients using one or two more of these devices at one time. But one thing is for certain, regardless if we are talking telehealth, mobilized health or RPMs, the future of delivering healthcare is not confined to a facility. It will need to be patient-centered. Season four of this podcast series, Telehealth's Quantum Leap into Patient-Centered Care talks to the innovators, the winners of the IEEE SA Telehealth Virtual Pitch Competition, the industry leaders, the clinicians, and other researchers who are at the forefront of driving innovation with solutions on accessibility, human factor design, flexibility, security, inclusivity, and all the other necessary ingredients to migrate healthcare to a patient-centered care system. So just a short disclaimer before we begin, IEEE does not endorse or financially support any of the products or services mentioned by or affiliated with our guest experts in this series. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Keith Thompson, Chief Medical Officer of Neurologics Corp to our conversation. Neurologic was one of the nine finalists to make it to the pitch round of the IEEE SA Rethink the RPM Machine Virtual Pitch Competition. Neurologic is an AI-powered solution for instant health and wellness data from your smartphone. I love this line on their website, so I'd like to share it with you all. It says, take a selfie to know you're healthy. And obviously, Keith will share with us what that means. But in the meantime, one of the reasons why I really enjoy having Keith on this podcast is that he is co-leading a pre-standards work stream entitled Virtual Care Lexicon in the IEEE SA Transforming the Telehealth Paradigm Industry Connections Program. So Keith, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Great to be here today. Really appreciate this opportunity. Keith, you have a very well-established career in primary care as a family physician. You are an advocate for utilizing virtual care and telehealth to reach patients. You have demonstrated passion in helping patients in everything from WANCA, the World Organization of Family Doctors. But really, what inspires you about the opportunities of virtual care? Most doctors are slower to technology adoption, and you seem to embrace it so well. How did you get involved? 
Thanks, Maria. I'll be honest, I was really a late bloomer to technology, and I jokingly say at this stage of my career, I haven't a lot of time left, so I have to make the best of it. But just seeing the advancement of technology and where workflows were going and uh, how we were embedding this into our day-to-day encounter just really fascinated me. And obviously, you start to see ways of doing things better. Like they say, better late than never. So I'm so glad you migrated to it. (laughs) Absolutely. So can you just briefly share with our audience the goal of the work that you had started with the virtual care lexicon workstream? Are you looking to standardize and how will it impact positively the future of telehealth and virtual care? I came to IEEE as a clinician. So just to clarify, I'm not an engineer by any means, but love what it has done just hanging out with this group. It's an interesting combination of the humanistic and sort of the artisan form of interacting with patients, but that zero room for error in an effort to try and make things perfect. The lexicon was started really under that IEEE telehealth industry connections that I came to, not really knowing what I was getting into initially. It has become what started as an attempt to define telemedicine, both technically and use cases and specifically terminology. And I see where we've moved more recently is into that realm of culture and linguistic appropriate services. How do we make this encounter better for the people that we're trying to engage? And so how we can use that ICT, you hear that term, information communication technology, using it in healthcare, but an effort to connect both the materials for health and device literacy, the other area we're getting into, is connecting those educational materials on a system like Guted, the Global Unique Device Identifier Database. And there's really a disconnect there. So we realized the first step within the lexicon, we hope to eventually get to a par in this class or culture, linguistic appropriate services, and or the health and device literacy. Both of those are getting traction. We've begun to explore some collaboration here in Canada, actually, with Indigenous communities. There's some interest in the language resurrections and the standards that might result in making that telemedicine encounter culturally safe for First Nations. And this is a huge part of what's going on here in Canada as we're in the midst of reconciliation within our Indigenous community. So a project like this within our lexicon really might not only provide an output for standards around that connectivity and databases and what would this look like so we could share that information with others attempting to do this. But here in Canada, be incredibly healing, part of a supportive measure just to make telemedicine or virtual care culturally appropriate, specifically for Indigenous communities. I think that's a fascinating project and it can transcend many different ways across geographic and other aspects as well. You went from doctor to chief medical officer of a cutting edge technology company. So Neurologics uses AI and machine learning and offers patients this ability to take a selfie and determine their level of wellness. Just for our audience, what exactly is it monitoring? What area of the population pool does it really serve? And what makes this platform so unique? I've recently come to Neurologica and my background was within telemedicine. I'm a primary care doc, first and foremost. So my day job is seeing patients. So my side gig was exploring and trying to get some telemedicine endeavors off the ground. We had a working relationship with Neurologic and I was immediately fascinated. I was like, wow, this takes telemedicine to the next level, being able to grab patient parameters and some biometric measures within that encounter. So the technology is a novel form of RPPG called transdermal optical imaging. And TOY is our Mm -hmm. trademark terminology. So by capturing blood flow using that principle of reflected light, 
we're not just measuring one region with toy, we're actually measuring 21 regions in the face and each region of the face acts differently. Your cheeks behave differently than your nose and your forehead. So we're able to capture that pulse waveform and then do feature analysis using machine learning models that are trained on 40,000 patients. And we can capture those patterns in the data sets that allow us readings on over 40 to 30 or more parameters for patients being scanned. So we're able to capture vital signs, metabolic biomarker risk, cardiovascular risk, mental health, stress related to HRV variability, and metabolic risk for diabetes and lipids. So our blood pressure is really our crown jewel. We are engaged with the FDA in a pre-submission. So our claims on this measurement still have to be validated as we get into that territory of class two medical device. So you'll see a disclaimer everywhere for investigational purposes only. That's really why we're about to start clinical trials for that. We're pretty confident with the technology. We've published data verifying that we can meet the ISO 81060 standards and so can claim accuracy on that. And we have also published some data on our biomarkers of mental stress. The population that we're serving, really the intended use is to screen for risk factors and chronic disease states under the care of a physician. We're not trying to replace the lab or replace the doctor encounter, but just build that awareness so our solution can really identify if you're at risk for cardiovascular, hypertension, diabetes, mental stress, heart rate variability, there's so many metabolic risks as well that we capture. We're soon going to launch hemoglobin A1C and mm -hmm. elevated morning fasting blood sugar. So it'll be a classifier model. Yes, no. Are you above or below a certain level? And if you look at World Health Organization, it really identifies hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and mental stress as those leading causes of morbidity and mortality. You can see that we're focused with our solution on those major epidemiologic indicators, or NCDs, you'll hear this term, non-communicable diseases, and that's really the big push. So we want our platform hopefully to be available to as many people as possible so they can understand and just be aware of their own health risk. And we hope to identify those populations at risk before disease develops or its related complications. So the first step in health literacy really is awareness. And that's where we intend our tool to be used. I think that's really important. And I think you already touched on a misconception that we often hear, oh, I'm using these wearables and it's monitoring me. So maybe I don't need to see the doctor as often. And it's like, no, this right. is supposed to be in support of. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, important. And it comes right from the doctor's mouth. We hear a lot about patient-centered care and patient-centered this in the healthcare system. So when you think of remote patient monitoring devices, systems transforming or trying to get to this patient-centered care system, where do you think there's more attention needed or innovation mm -hmm. needed to really mm -hmm. transition RPM into a true patient-centered care model? Honestly, so many things come to mind. I think for me, and really I have to give IEEE and some of the mentors I've been working with credit for this, but the first thing that comes to me is equitable access. So we've seen such a digital divide in society as we become more technology-based, yet those social determinants of health, which you hear about, have really also become digital determinants of health. They're one and the same. The UN declared internet access as a basic human right almost 10 years ago, and we've made great strides in improving connectivity and internet access, but there's still significant disparity, especially within those low middle income regions and marginalized populations where it's either complex care needs, high urban density, or folks with disabilities. So the application of monitoring systems to the patient point to care, I think will move care closer to the patient in terms of capturing data 
But then what sort of ecosystem and workflow are we creating in conjunction with the physicians embedded into that remote patient monitoring workflow? And will we see the need for physicians in that workflow at all? Will patients still want some sort of humanistic attachment? And I've been diving into a thought leader here. She's since passed away. Ursula Franklin, she was an archaeologist by trade, but released a whole thought process around technology. And she talked about technology being either prescriptive, right? The rules that you must follow or humanistic or holistic. And really medicine, when you think of it, certainly primary care is holistic. So how do we combine those two things and how much can we transfer over to the technology side and at what cost are we losing the holistic aspect? Also, just to comment that healthcare access really is only 25% of those health outcomes. In other words, getting access to healthcare doesn't solve those issues around social determinants of health, which play a far bigger role in health outcomes. So Improving those social determinants is needed. Providing the technology or access to care just with technology may not achieve that end result or outcome that we'd expect. So I think remote patient monitoring also points us to an era of high volume and low physician touch, which I say physician specifically, because there's another technology thought leader here, Marshall McLuhan, kind of another philosopher. He said that the age of technology will be the age of do-it-yourself. That's so true. And we see yep. as the knowledge and technical skills are now prescribed or advanced to systems, it could be a Google search to determine my symptoms, or at some point, AI or machine learning control of robotic surgery or diagnostic systems we're already seeing. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions as things go forward, but equity of access for sure is a key ingredient we have to maintain. And I think that's what IEEE and Sight and Hack has really been focused on and really passionate about. And it's been Great working with this group. Absolutely. It's really interesting, though. You mentioned the social determinants of health. In season three, AI for Good Medicine, I actually interviewed the CTO of Closed Loop AI. And one of their core projects on COVID-19, like the effective risk and outcomes, was using data of social determinants. The idea was to really look at the social determinants rather than just therapeutic risk-based factors, really improve the outcomes. Are you a tech startup wondering how likely telehealth is to keep its momentum in the next five to 10 years? McKinsey forecasts roughly 25% of the total cost of care for U.S. Medicare patients will shift to the home by 2025. And the remote patient monitoring market is expected to surpass $1.25 billion by 2030, according to MarketWatch. Despite how favorable the growth trends are, it's not easy to be a telehealth tech startup today. The IEEE-SA telehealth startup community is designed for technologist entrepreneurs who have a proof of concept, prototype, or maybe an early commercialization of a technology product in the telehealth domain. The community offers tech and industry mentorship, partnership development opportunities, and the invitation to be part of a think tank to help drive trust and adoption of these technologies. Plus, you can earn credits to present demos and participate in virtual and face-to-face -face events hosted by IEEE's Healthcare Life Science Practice. If you want to join us and make this impact on the future of telehealth, you can join for free at ieesa.io backslash telehealth-startup. So we've prefaced this a little bit, but 
there's a lot of misconceptions around, you know, remote patient monitoring devices. You know, patients are not going to adhere. The data can't be validated. This thing is only going to do so much. When you think about it, what do you see or what do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to the concept of telehealth, whether it's from a patient perspective, a physician perspective, the payers or yeah. any other stakeholder in the process? I think maybe biased from where I am as a physician, but for me, the biggest misconception might center around workflow. For telemedicine to be truly sustainable for physicians and payers for that matter, it needs to be efficient and optimized in terms of workflow. So this means really terrific supports, both patient and providers, so that mm -hmm. they're both literate and trained in the pre-visit, during the visit, and post-visit follow-up. What does that workflow look like? How much can we do digitally via surveys, questionnaires? Is a translator needed? Is connectivity appropriate? What digital modality is best, video or telephone? And does a patient have access to that modality? I feel there's some misconceptions maybe from payers, just how much time is involved in a good telemedicine encounter. So even without telemedicine, EMRs, electronic medical records, have significantly increased physician admin burdens, right? The mm -hmm. time we spend, we see so much greater integration of technologies to improve the depth of that encounter and using virtual care tools, but we increase the clicks, the logons, several minutes added to that encounter. So how do we cover that added admin time with limited healthcare budgets? So we're expanding the non-clinical part of that encounter. There's a disconnect really between the system designers and payers and patients and providers real world experience. So payers, providers and patients, that digital journey that everyone goes through to access and provide care, experience firsthand, go through it, co-design, so important, right? So what's the actual experience for all these actors coming into the system? Absolutely. And I think these are all relevant points because we all think, oh, we have a new technology tool. It's going to make everything go faster and shorter time. But the transformation is not just the technology, the digital side of it. It's the whole process that has to be aligned yes. with it. Otherwise, maybe we're just making more work for all of us in the process. <laughs> So I often say, I write about this, I talk about it, that the future of telehealth will look very different than we see it today. As a physician, I think for you, why is it important to envision a potential future of mobilized care? We hear about the tele-ICU in the future, the mobile urgent care units, but this idea of bringing healthcare to the home, how do we really see it improving patient outcomes? That's an interesting question, Maria. And I think the question really challenges us to look more closely at telemedicine, virtual care, and its applications under the same lens that we would use for other interventions, i.e. pharmacoeconomics, right? We talk mm -hmm. about human economic outcome or health economic outcome research and cost benefits, cost effectiveness, cost utilization, cost minimization. So cost minimization, assuming that the outcomes are equal, but we can deliver care cheaper. Or maybe there's benefits in terms of lower hospitalization. So you can see moving patients into home, absolutely one or two days saved from a hospital admission is thousands of dollars or reduced ER visits. Cost effectiveness is more in actual natural units. So would an intervention lower blood pressure? And there's studies on this, right? By partnering with mm -hmm. patients digitally, you can prompt them to take their blood pressure meds to exercise behavioral change, and we can see effective gains. Lastly, cost utilization, that's quality adjusted life years. And that's harder to put a dollar value on, right? Is that ease of, of access, not having to travel to the doctor and, and all that that's convenient. So I think we have to be careful that not all care transitions to virtual in a cost-effective manner. We might, for example, see physicians order more needless tests to compensate for that insecurity, a lack of an exam, and some studies have hinted at this. 
on the same note, patients might feel that seeing more than one physician just due to ease of access. And I had a counter, you know, with a patient coming to see me and said, the video assessment wasn't really an exam doc. I needed somebody to listen to my lung, right? So we had two visits that could have been done in one. I think we'll need to apply a little tougher, if you would, economic lens. And it makes everybody cringe because we know the convenience. We know that patients love of, of ease of access and lower costs for physician encounters for sure. But in the global economic, what does it look like? Yeah, we may have to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. We kind of just touched on this before, but we hear, oh, if we're bringing healthcare to the home, right? Do we really still need doctors' offices and hospitals? And you sort mm. of just led into that. But the real question is, is how is that dynamic changing in this area of healthcare, right? Like thinking of the hospital as the place to go for care. There's so many forces at play here. And certainly there is in the medical system and physicians, especially in primary care, we want mm -hmm. continuity and longitudinal relationships. The patients want convenience of access in some ways opposing forces, right? So I, I believe the hospital is always going to be the go-to for surgical treatments, radiotherapy, for example. But mm -hmm. days in the hospital will no doubt be shorter. And I think the post-operative timelines move into the home with less inpatient time. So the question or perhaps the danger is, is going more into remote patient monitoring and home-based care. How far is a physician interaction with his patients removed from that digital ecosystem? You saw one of my recent posts on LinkedIn, right, with an RPM mm -hmm. system that got hacked. You could do a whole thing on security, I'm sure. All the actors weren't notified, but the poor docs and nurses involved for that remote fetal heart monitoring. The system was down. Nobody knew. Patient didn't know. Physicians weren't notified. And there's going to be a really messy lawsuit as a result. The other part to this, how much of that face-to-face -face is therapeutic and really can't be replaced by a digital workflow. And I'm not sure we know the answer to that yet, but there's one person that can tell us, and that's the patient. And just as I mentioned before about Ursula Franklin, you know, that prescriptive force of telemedicine and remote patient monitoring becomes so strong that this becomes now the only way of doing things. And so, i.e., that digitally and, and remote patient monitoring fewer face-to-face -face visits, but how holistic and compassionate is that healthcare system will it be at that point? We can, yes, have ISO 9000 perfection and supersede that need for human touch and, and interaction with patients. You know, how far do we go and who knows? Certainly, this is where we need to dig down, I think, a bit more and perhaps further research on patient-reported outcomes and satisfaction and not just healthcare dollars saved. Absolutely. And I think it's an important point that we always talk about stakeholder trust and everybody thinks, well, will the patients trust the process and the device? But we also need the doctors and the clinical workers to trust it as well. And so if workflows are not designed to as best mitigate risk for all the parties involved, then we're going to continue to have this question of trust. I wish, honestly, every one of my colleagues could at least do a couple of stints in some of our meetings to learn about that issue. I trust that my device is measuring properly. I have no idea the standards and the protocol for that trust. And I can think of differently about calibration now and how I approach, you know, just simple measurements. So we're kind of like leaning into this question here. And I think you mentioned it as well earlier on this question of health equity, right? We know there's marginalized mm -hmm. populations without access to healthcare or very limited access to healthcare or understanding of the healthcare process. So telehealth technically, right, should reach those who are the hardest to reach. Yeah. So Keith, yeah. in your view, how can telehealth equitably reach the patients 
who are currently not included in the healthcare system. What do you see as some of the challenges that need to be addressed? Obviously, you mentioned the language was one, but that telehealth could be a viable platform to try to close this healthcare gap. As I mentioned earlier, those social determinants become digital determinants. They become one and the same, in my opinion. But apply that technological access to a marginalized population doesn't unto itself improve an outcome. Certainly, access, I think, is the cornerstone. We've got to have a secure line into those communities. And it should be a basic human right, just as clean water and food security. And beyond this, I think, then we look to focusing or leveraging on community health workers within those communities. You know, we've had some presentations here with IEEE, Public Health Foundation of India, and Dr. Aaron Jose and their telemedicine program. Look it up, doing some great work, partnered telemedicine with community workers, right, to be that line in. We're partnered at Neurologic with Lafia that's putting telemedicine kiosks into remote regions of Nigeria. What's interesting in that platform is the solar panel that they put in that community is being used as a resource to provide some micro economies that might be the alternative business model. Because really, the issues move away from solving the connectivity to solving those social innovations and business models to support those regions. So there's no longer value in the model of just selling devices and multiple units to providers or consumers. Rather, how do we fund a single device and platform and scale to regions needing support for tens of thousands of patients without access to primary care? The technology is great, but we really have to keep our eyes on the ball, I think, on the sustainability and business model, because it's certainly talking about compassion and humanitarian reach. I think there's sort of an assumption that it's for free and it's an you know, NGO and it's a, a philanthropic <laughs> offering, but there's ways to do it, right, that we can support communities with the technology and help them sustain themselves. Absolutely. Uh, very, very good point. All right. So, Keith, you've given so many insights. I think your perspective as a physician working in now a really technical environment is really, really refreshing. Any final thoughts you would like to share with our audience? It could be technologists who are embarking in virtual care technologies or already there and looking at this context of patients and care. It could be a call to action, a call for attention and innovation. Yeah, you know, Maria, honestly, just to say thank you to you and IEEE, right, that industry connections and site. This organization has been an incredible mentor and inspiration for me. I've said that combining engineering design with zero air and medical humanitarian applications, right, compassionate care here has been an incredible journey. So call to action, get involved in this organization if you can. You're going to grow personally and professionally, and I guarantee you'll become a better person just by helping address those needs of humanity using technology. And last, thanks to Neurologic for supporting me in this, right? They've mm -hmm. encouraged me, you know, questions asked. I love it. So great. I really appreciate it, Maria. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. You always got so many great insights, your passions and, you know, for humanitarian causes and just overall, just your empathy for patients. It's just very refreshing. So thank you for no. taking the time and no. being a thank part you. of this podcast today. For all of you out there, if you want to learn more about Neurologics, you can visit at Neurologics, N-U-R-A-L-O-G-I-X dot A-I. If you would like to get involved in the work stream Keith mentioned on virtual care lexicon or other aspects of the IEEE SA Transforming the Telehealth Paradigm Incubator Program, visit IEEESA.io backslash telehealth IC. Many of the concepts we talked today with Keith are addressed in so many different activities here at the IEEE SA Healthcare Life Science Practice. You know, the mission of the practice is engaging multidisciplinary stakeholders such as Keith 
And they openly collaborate, they build consensus and develop solutions in an open standardized means to support innovation that will ultimately help us achieve the goal of privacy, security, and equitable, sustainable access to quality care for all. Activities such as the transforming the telehealth paradigm, the WAMI, wearables and medical IoT interoperability intelligence, are just naming a few of the different activities here. And if you want to learn more how you can get involved, there's no cost to join these activities. You can visit ieesa.io backslash HLS. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to share it with your peers, your colleagues on your networks. This is the only way we can get these important discussions out into the domain is by you helping us get the word out. So you can use the hashtag IEEEHLS or tag us on Twitter at IEEESA, or you can tag us on LinkedIn at IEEE Standards Association when sharing this podcast. So a special thank you to you, the audience, for listening in today. Continue to stay safe and well. Until next time. On behalf of IEEE Standards Association and IEEE SA Voice, thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit standards.ieee.org. We hope you'll join us again soon.